Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to see everyone. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Puzzling Passages. Puzzling passages misused and misunderstood. And so we took some votes and gathered up some um, response and feedback from the congregation. And we are looking through a series of texts or passages that um, have been misused or misunderstood or can be kind of controversial. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 13 and the role of government in uh, the Christian's life, our relationship to the government. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and talked about um, women in leadership in the church and what the scriptures have to say about that. Um, and this morning, we come to another very, very famous uh, verse in the Bible um, that most of us will be familiar with. I think most of us are familiar with it, even people outside the church. It's that kind of prevalent in our culture. Um, but before we get there, I kind of want to set us up to be able to look at this text together. A few years ago, about three years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Europe for about 10 days in the summer for a backpacking trip. And it was a very unique opportunity because I was taking three 18-year-olds who had just graduated high school. Um, I had taught them when they were freshmen, and uh, they had kind of grown up in our church, and I'd become friends with their families. Um, And uh, since I wasn't able to teach uh, their school for their senior year and lead them on a trip that they normally do during the year, um, their parents were like, hey, why don't y'all just travel across the world, and y'all can have like a big blowout trip that way. And we're like, all right, let's do that. Um, And uh, so you got to kind of feel the nervousness that I had um, traveling to um, Europe, and not only just traveling to Europe, um, to places I don't speak the language, don't know much about, but also taking people's kids um, and all of the adventures and responsibility that comes with that. It wasn't my first foray into this kind of thing. Um, when I started teaching at that high school, um, they had booked me to lead some trips um, across the nation for a thing they did every year called Eagle Week where they would send out mission trips all across the the country and even into the um, other countries in the world. And what they needed was they needed more trips, the school did. And what they found was that if you put a a teacher on this trip, you put their name at the top of the bill um, that students didn't really like or want to spend time with, the trip didn't really fill up, and so they might have to cancel it and not have enough trips. And so my first year there, they're like, hey, kids like Mike, and so you know, are you willing to, to put your name on the top of this Nashville trip? And I was like, sure. I, you know, I didn't know what it was about. And, you know, we had 30, 40 kids sign up, and then it was a done deal. I was taking 40 kids to Nashville, and then it hit me that I was taking 40 kids to Nashville, um, 13 and 14 years old. And, and if you've ever wanted to find confidence in your life, if you've ever really wanted to feel supported, you should be me at age 23 and then tell your parents that you're about to take 40, 14-year-olds to Nashville and see the horror that comes over their face. I mean, nothing builds you up much like that. I honestly don't think my parents would have let me take my little brother to Nashville, just the two of us. And the school slowly started to pick up on like what they had gotten themselves into. The first problem was I couldn't rent a car and I couldn't drive a car that had been rented, and, and there were some issues going with that. And, and so I did that every year, and it, it went okay. And like I said, that last year I wasn't able to be with them, and so we didn't go on that trip that year. So we went to Europe, and um, the kids had some family members in Europe and uh, had been there quite a bit. And so before we went, we had a couple like master planning sessions, and the parents and some family members and, and us were there. And we had this huge map of Europe laid out, 
And we had to do some very detailed future-oriented planning. I mean, we had to map out like check-in times at hostels and hotels. We had to map out kind of like a route where we were going to go. Um, the goal was hit 10 countries in 10 days. And so there was a lot of traveling and a lot of like very precise kind of uh, itinerary that was going on. And we got there and I'm happy to say we nailed it. I mean, we we stuck to the plan, and it was amazing. All of us had this big map of Europe still, and, and we've got the original plan, and then we have got like what we ended up doing and the timetable we ended up doing it at, and it, it was almost perfect. And if you know me, you know this is an anomaly for me. Most of my plans don't work out like this. Um, I like to plan, but just never quite go the way I want them to go. Um, sometimes it's because of uh, lack of proper planning. Sometimes because I get there, and if you're like me, I'm like, I just want to do something different now. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be a little flexible. All of us, though, I think, like having that feeling that there is a plan. That even if it's not our plan, somebody has a plan. Whether it's an adult or a loved one, whether it's God. Um, we, we all enjoy this comfort that uh, even when things seem out of control, there's somebody, even if it's not us, right, that has it in control. And this kind of very natural human desire is what makes this verse that we're going to look at this morning so very popular. It speaks to that desire. Um, so if you have a Bible, flip open with me to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 11. Jeremiah is in our Old Testament. It's a book that maybe we don't go to a whole lot. If you have uh, one of the ESVs underneath the seat around you, I believe the page number for you is going to be 656. Jeremiah 29, 11, this is a verse that's very, very, very popular. If you walk into any bookstore or Christian kind of craft store, you'll see um, shirts with it on, and you'll see plaques with this verse, paintings. Um, if you've ever gotten like a Christian greeting card for a baptism or graduation or something like that, chances are you've given a card like this or come across the very least cards with this verse on it. Um, I uh, was looking this week and came across a list of the most popularly tattooed verses of the Bible. Now, I can't say that I know exactly that the methodology of this study was solid. I don't quite know how you would be able to, to do that kind of research. I'm assuming they just Google searched it and ended it up. But on their list, and this has kind of been true in my experience, Jeremiah 29, 11 places top five in Bible verses that people find so much meaning in that they get it inked on themselves. I mean, it's that kind of meaningful to them. Um, and what I want to suggest this morning um, when we look at it is that maybe there's more to this verse than meets the eye. Now, what I don't want to do is take this verse away from you. I have friends, close friends, that since they were a child kind of gravitated to this verse and kind of have held on to it. It was kind of like this life verse. It's about them comfort and joy. So I'm not trying to pull that rug out from underneath you, if that's you. Um, I think, though, um, when we look at it and dig into it a little more deeply, um, that it becomes more relevant and more hopeful and more meaningful to us. Um, let's look at this verse together. It reads like this, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I think all of us can immediately see why this verse would be so meaningful. Why in, in a world where we often make such big mistakes or where people kind of take our plans off the rail. It means a lot for us to be able to trust in God's plans for us. Now, a problem occurs with this verse because some people, and, and you can see how this might work, when they read just this verse, they start to see 
this promise is kind of like a blank check, like a, almost like a, a promise for health and, and prosperity, like a promise that things will always be awesome, um, that, that you're not going to experience evil, you're going to experience welfare, you're not going to be in despair, you're going to have hope, and you're going to look forward to the future. And the issue is, as we know, right, there are times when that doesn't seem to be true. And for some people who, who think that this is just the promise with no asterisks, with no deeper meaning behind it, they can start to really have a crisis of faith when things go wrong. They can start to wonder what they, they did to take them out of God's plan. They can wonder why they're not experiencing what this promise says here. Now, this promise with just verse 11, I think it's a promise without a home. It's a promise without a story. It's a promise without a context. Um, And this is one of the things that Christians, you and I, need to learn, I think, how to do better when it comes to reading our Bibles. Um, There's an author who goes through ways that we commonly in the West read our Bibles, and one of the ones he mentions, which I've found very prevalent, and when I was growing up, I, I fell into this a lot, was we read our Bibles as a series of promises or blessings. A lot of devotional books are like this. So on Monday, we get a verse from Matthew, and on Tuesday, we get a verse from Isaiah, on Wednesday, we get a verse from Romans. And when we do that, what we find is that it can be pretty easy to start to think that this is all that's there, that life should be just one blessing after another blessing after another blessing, that life just promises to always be good. You rack up all these promises without a home, and they start to be able to get distorted. We start to be able to read our own thoughts and intentions into it. So what I want to do this morning is put this promise back in its home, back in its context, back in its story, and see what meaning it takes on for us. And I think um, rather than pulling out the rug from people who find comfort and meaning in this verse, it'll actually deepen it. It's more relevant, I think, than just a promise by itself. It's more meaningful. It's more hopeful to you and I. So um, the way we do this is what we've been doing through this series is we look at context. We don't want to look at just that one verse. We want to look at what's around it. And so if you would, let's read together, picking up at the very beginning of this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's put this promise back in its home. It reads like this, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's our kind of setting our context for what comes later, and we see in verse 11. This is part of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah is sending to Israelites who are in exile. Um, What this is referring to is this very dark moment in Israel's history, where because of their sin, because of turning away from God, judgment has come upon them, and this foreign army has come over, this empire has taken them over, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they come in and they have this mass deportation, and they take the Israelites out of their land that God had promised to them and put them in a land that's not their own. And so they're living in this land that's unfamiliar to them, with languages that are unfamiliar to them, with gods that are unfamiliar to them. They're transplanted. They're aliens. They're strangers. Now, not everyone has been taken to Babylon. There's still some that are living in Jerusalem, Um, The temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. This is a huge deal for the Israelites. The temple is where God had promised to be with his people for his presence to dwell. It's been destroyed. And before you get this this letter written by Jeremiah, in chapter 28, something very important happens. 
you have two characters. You have the prophet Jeremiah, and you have another prophet whose name is Hananiah, which for your parents, your next child, it's a great name, okay? Someone called Dibs right now, and we don't have to argue about it later. You have Hananiah, you have Jeremiah, and they have a confrontation in kind of the ruins of the temple. And the confrontation is over what message God wants to give to these people who are suffering, who are lost, who are perhaps without hope. Hananiah says this. He says that in two years, this exile will be over. Everyone will come back. The temple will be rebuilt. Before you know it, things will be back to what they were supposed to be. And you can imagine that if you were in exile, this would be fairly good news to you. Maybe a year would be better. But two years, all things considered, is not that bad. It plays good to people's ears. Hananiah is called a false prophet in the Bible. He's pictured as one of these prophets who says what people want to hear and not what God really wants to tell them. And Jeremiah confronts him and says, that's not true. You're telling lies. You're a false prophet. And this letter is Jeremiah's timetable instead. This is Jeremiah saying, this is really what God wants to tell you, this community living in exile. When we read this promise in verse 11, I think that the difference we have, the choice we have to make is whether we read it as coming from Hananiah or we read it as coming from Jeremiah. Because they have two different perspectives. They're offering two different things to God's people. Hananiah gives more immediate hope. Jeremiah, if you know anything about Jeremiah, he's not the most popular guy. He often gives, he's kind of like the bad news guy. He is not really well liked. In fact, there's a point in Jeremiah's career where no one has believed anything he's preached, and the only really one who's on his team is his secretary. And like, that's not a good career move, right? If the only, the person you pay is the only person that's still like with you, no one's paying attention to you. Jeremiah often goes and says, this is what God has told me to tell you, and the people don't like it. And they beat him up and they throw him in a ditch. He has a, he has a really hard run of it as a prophet. Some prophets are really successful. Jeremiah is, is not so much. He, he has a hard path to follow. So let's watch Jeremiah's um, offer, his word to the, the people in exile um, that's different from Hananiah's. We'll skip verses 2 and 3 because it's full of a lot of names that neither of us can pronounce. Um, verse 4, it says this. Here's the letter. It starts like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, don't decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now again, try to place yourself as the, the recipients of this letter in exile. And you get a message that says, hey, buy a house and find a spouse and, and plant a garden and work towards the good of this city. If I'm stuck in Europe on this trip and for a reason unable to get back home, come back to Texas, come back to Sugarland, and then I hear word from the American government or from like my parents and they say, hey, look for a place to stay. You might start looking for like some relationships up there, start applying for jobs. I'm hearing this as 
bad news. At least implicit in this is a message, right? This is not going to be over so quickly. You might need to put down roots where you are. This might go a different way than you would have planned it, or you would have drawn this out. Now, you and I are exiles, we're told in the New Testament. There's lots of things about the Israelites and their experience in exile that is relevant and relatable to you and I. The New Testament tells us our citizenship is in heaven. It's not any nation here. Um, We sing different songs, just like the Israelites were singing different songs in Babylon. We worship a different God, just like um, the Israelites were worshiping a different God in Babylon. And one of the things that we need to learn how to do is to learn how to be okay being exiles, being strangers, being aliens, living lives that that are countercultural, living lives that don't go in the grain with everybody else, because our our citizenship is is somewhere else. We're biding time in, in this place at this time. And Christians have always looked back to this passage and others like it and seen instructions on how it is that people should live faithfully in exile. And the instructions are to get married, have kids. This is a repetition of the Genesis command given to human beings. Multiply, be fruitful. It says, you've still, everything I wanted you to do, you still have to do in that moment. You can't take a time out here. Even though this is not your permanent location and situation, you're still following me. You're still being faithful. And he says, and seek the welfare of that city. Don't, don't um, try to crumble it from within. Don't try to form a revolution. Don't revolt. He says, no, work toward its good. And in its good, you'll find your good. You and I are exiles not only because we're Christians and we belong to a different kingdom, um, but culturally we're experiencing a moment of exile as, as Christians. Um, we're going into what has been called like post-Christendom, um, where in our nation, in America, was once seen to be kind of a society upheld and informed by Christians making decisions, is now increasingly a society that doesn't seem to always value a Christian opinion, that doesn't always make laws and follow the paths that the majority of Christians perhaps would, would want, would vote on. And for many of us, this causes a lot of anxiety. This is a new experience for us. We aren't quite sure what's going to happen, what's ahead of us. Now, for me, I'm a little bit younger, and I wasn't really that hardcore of a Christian when I was a kid, and and some of these things were still maybe happening. And so I could kind of care less that Christians are kind of going out of power today. Um, In fact, you know, I I see it as kind of a good thing, to be honest. Um, I'm kind of critical, so I look back at the time when Christians kind of did have the power, and I can point out there's a whole lot of bad things happening right? Like maybe the power is kind of corrupting. Maybe the power just keeps the status quo, makes it harder for us to follow and make sacrifices and do things of that nature. But I fully understand my older brothers and sisters, pastors and friends, who are feeling this kind of like existential fear about what's happening in culture and society. The answer is not to revolt. It's not to make power plays. It's not to just throw a bomb in the system and let it crumble. It's to live as an exile, to be faithful, to take that posture, to perhaps find more faithfulness, more joy, more peace available, a more sure identity in, in yourself as, as one of God's people. We keep reading this, this letter. It, it says this, verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. 
For it is the lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. He's referring to Hananiah and others like him. For thus says the Lord, verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, I don't know what your level of patience is like. My level of patience never reaches 70 years. I don't have plans for 70 years from now. I assume I'll be working in like a part-time job wearing like a hot dog costume, okay? There's no retirement funds built up. If I'm waiting on someone to visit me, if I need to talk to someone or want to, to have an experience with somebody, I definitely am not going to be able to wait patiently for 70 years. Think about this. The same promise God has plans for you and a future for you from Hananiah sounds much different than that promise coming from Jeremiah. Two years I can deal with. Two years and things still might get back on track exactly how I imagine them, how I want them. 70 years, especially in the ancient world, means this. You're going to end your life in Babylon. Your kids are going to end their life in Babylon. They're not going to know another home. Maybe some of your oldest children and then your grandchildren. They might be part of that group that goes back to to Israel. This would not have been received as all that good of news. This is not what those people would have planned. This is not their best life. This is not everything's awesome for them. Hananiah's promise is closer to what we're often tempted to do when we read promises in Scripture. It's, It's closer to the American dream. Right? Exactly what we want, our felt needs. Success is defined by our culture. This is what we're after. This is what we can attain. And what I've found is that the American dream almost never, if ever, matches up to God's dreams for us. God calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to serve. He calls us to suffer. All of those things, those three things, just those three things I listed. From the time I was a small child, I was taught to avoid those things. I was taught to invest in myself and to work hard enough so I wouldn't have to endure those things. The heroes that I heard stories about are the people who went above and beyond those things. It was the cautionary tales that were the people who still had to serve others, whose life was one big sacrifice, who lived in a state of suffering. Then I become a Christian, and and this is the life that Jesus lays out for me. This is where he says true life is found, true joy, true contentment. It's it's different. Jeremiah is telling the people that the suffering is here to stay. Hananiah says it will be over. We'll move out of this. Jeremiah says, no, it's, it's just a part of your reality now. And then he gives this promise. It's not all bad news. This is the home of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and you'll come and pray to me and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I'll I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, this promise given in verse 11, there's a couple things we can sometimes overlook. The, the first is that this promise is given to a community and not to an individual. 
And this makes a big difference. We've talked about this before at the church. Um, We often read promises in the Bible as if they're directed towards individuals. So this this is a promise to me, Mike Skinner. And more often than not, the Bible's promises are directed to a community, to a group of people. And in fact, even in the original languages, it's you plural. But our Bible translators still live in the life of sin and haven't repented and started using y'all. Um, and we've solved this problem a long time ago. So we hear you and, and we can get confused. There's a big difference between a promise made to a person and a promise made to a community. I can say things are going to go well for you, or I can say things are going to go well for this church. And those mean different things. There's different assurances to be found in those promises. There's different comforts, different hopes. He's talking to a community here. Notice also he, he talks about his plans, God's plans. The word used here is the same word used in Isaiah to, to um, talk about translate there as thoughts, intentions. We read in our scripture reading, right? Isaiah says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This is, again, the kind of the substitute mistake we make. We assume that God's plans are our plans. And our plans are usually not God's plans. And I'm actually very thankful for that. Again, I might be all alone up here this morning, but what I've found is I'm pretty bad at picking my blessings. If I got everything that I wanted and life went exactly how I would have mapped it out, I'd have a lot more fun. Be on a jet ski right now, in the sun, the York or Wales. But I'd probably look back with some regret, particularly if I could compare it with the life that God had planned for me. In fact, a lot of the things that I would have skipped if I had the choice turn out to be some of the biggest sources of blessing in my life. It's a good thing God's plans aren't our plans. But when we read God has plans for us, we can't just simply substitute our ideas, our intentions, our thoughts. We have to acknowledge his plans are different. My plan might be two years. His plan might be 70 years. My plan might for the suffering to be over. His plan might for, be for the suffering to be something I get through. There's, there's something different about this. So this is the promise. I, I have plans for you to do good, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we need to hear this promise from Jeremiah and, and not hear it from Hananiah. This promise is not that God's going to deliver them on their timetable. And this promise is not that he's going to excuse them from suffering or excuse them from hardship. His promise is that even in that situation, even in the darkest of moments that they could come to, He's still working out something much greater than they could ever imagine. And their call is to not limit their hope in God to their circumstances or their situations. It's to trust God and trust in his character and his eternal plan. One of the things we need to do as Christians is I think we need to convert our imaginations. Too often our imaginations are limited by our situations and our circumstances. So when things are going bad all around us, we have a hard time imagining how God might work this for good. When we can't see a way out of a circumstance or a situation, when we feel stuck in a failure, 
our imaginations are, are stifled and restrained. It's death, really, that, that's the ultimate imagination killer. And this is what God is calling the Israelites to, to kind of cross over from, to think that there can be a good plan, a better plan, that might end with them not seeing it on this side of eternity, not being able to hold it and grasp it. God's promise to the Israelites is the one that we receive this morning, which is that in the world of sin and death, resurrection has the final word. In a life where you perhaps can't imagine things working out or good coming from a situation, resurrection is the word spoken that will last eternally. And the relationships that you have and the people around you that you see suffering and you, your heart goes out for them and you can't imagine why God would let this happen to them, why God's not interrupting and stopping and changing things. The word is that resurrection will have the final laugh. It will make the final impact, the ultimate difference. God's life bringing, death undoing love. There's been a lot of talk in our culture um, this week and the past couple weeks about what's credible. When we listen to someone, do they sound credible? When they tell a story, are they, are they being credible? What can we believe? I think this is what this promise is getting towards. What can you believe in your circumstances? What can you believe in your problems? There's a theologian, a Catholic theologian, I like uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, also a great name. who said once, and this is all I can remember the past couple of weeks, he says, love alone is credible. He says, it's the only thing that should be believed. And nothing else ought to be believed. He's saying, if, if as Christians we know God's character as love, we know that God is love in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then any other message that we receive other than God's love, his life-bringing love, his tomb-opening love, is ultimately not the full message. It's ultimately not the whole story. And no matter who gives it to you, no matter how deeply it's ingrained in your brain or imagination, no matter what your circumstances or situation is telling you, it's not to be believed. The love is to be believed. And that God has this plan that we get to gratefully find ourselves participants in. We had an associate pastor, Wes, um, years ago, and he was giving a sermon once, and he mentioned this verse, and he had this killer line that I've always remembered. Um, you know, from this verse, there's the saying that's kind of come about, like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Again, there's nothing really wrong with that saying. But again, we can kind of substitute our plans for God's plans and think like, this isn't my definition of a wonderful plan. This is really bad planning, God. And so he rephrased it a little bit and he tinkered it, I think, to kind of match up more closely with the context here. He says, God has a wonderful plan for you. Or no, I'm sorry, I messed it up already. He says this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for creation. 
and you are part of creation. You belong to creation. You'll participate in this plan. But it might not be centered on you. It might not go exactly how you would have hoped it would go. But at the end of the day, it'll be better than anything you could have come up with. It'll be worth all of it. This is the the promise that is given to us. To be able to trust in God. To be able to trust in Him regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of what we can believe or can't believe or can't imagine or can't imagine. That's why I say I think putting this promise in its home makes it more relevant. Because most of us don't live lives that are awesome all the time. This verse is really easy by itself if your life is awesome all the time. But the moment it, it, it hiccups a bit, there starts to be something out of shift here. But with the, the context, we might understand it, and it might be more relevant and meaningful to us, particularly when things are, are not quite the way we would want them. That's when we hear this word. That's when we're called to trust. That's when we can have assurance of God's plan for us, the future that he has for all of creation. It's love that you and I cannot get out of. We find ourselves caught up in. This morning as we come to the table, as we do every week, we we come to place ourselves in the story. We come to, to rehearse our participation in God's love. We come in particular to say, as we eat the bread and drink the juice, that our lives, our destinies, are inevitably intertwined with that of Jesus. And as Jesus has life, we have life. Because we're united with him, and we can't be separated. Well, there's no, no death, no demons, no angels, no powers, no heights, no depths. Nothing can separate you from Christ. And the love that Jesus enjoys from the fathers, the love that we enjoy from the Father. The eternal life that Jesus enjoys is the eternal life that we will enjoy. Our story is caught up in Jesus' story. Our destiny is intertwined with his destiny. Our trust, being able to put ultimately and fully and joyously in God's plan to redeem all things. This morning, I encourage you to to hold on to that, to grasp onto that. And in so doing, I think we'll we'll find life and purpose, and we'll, we'll perhaps find some strength to endure when the exile comes, when the darkness hits. That that won't be the thing that shakes us off of our belief in God's plan of redemption and life, that will be the thing that recalls us, reminds us of God's plan for redemption and life.